Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What drains you the most? What is it that takes your energy and kind of sucks it out and leaves you vulnerable or empty feeling? Is it work? Is it sickness? Or is it people? Life can be draining, and living in a world that is sick with sin, we experience life as something that can take from us more than it gives to us. When a man is young, he's able to rely more on his youth and energy to get him through the things he needs to do, and he's looking forward in life to more accomplishments, more things that lay ahead of him. Yet when life wears on a person... And a man faces trials that drain him of that youth, then what is he going to rely on? When a young mom has given all she can for her kids and her husband, and a particular difficult day leaves her feeling empty, where will that strength come from? When a man is old, And he looks back on all he has accomplished to the point that his bank account is overflowing. And yet he's alone. No friends. No love. What's going to fill his soul? In our text from John chapter 4, Jesus comes to a place called Sychar. It's a town in Samaria. And Samaria is a place that lies between two countries. To the south, you have Judea, the place of the Jews, the place of Jerusalem. And to the north, you have a mixture of small villages and fishing towns called Galilee. It's a precarious place for a Jew to travel. The Samaritans were viewed as enemies of the Jews. There's a long history in the Bible of differences that arose between the Samaritans and the town of Samaria and the Jews in Judea or to the north. There's a long history, and the Samaritans were looked at as a mixed people. They intermarried with Gentiles, and so the generations that developed were made up of Jewish-Gentile race. Many of the pagan beliefs of the Gentiles, idolatry and other practices had made their way in as it kind of melded together with what the Bible said and then what the world said until it became a new religion. Not only was it thought of as wrong for the Jews to travel through Samaria because of those differences, it was also dangerous. It was a violent place where someone of another ethnicity could be kidnapped, could be robbed, could even be killed. Maybe you remember the story of the Good Samaritan. In order to get to, from Judea to Galilee then, there are basically three routes. One is you go to the far east, the far west, which would take an extra five to seven days. Or you go to the far east, cross the Jordan River that should take an extra three to five days. It's already going to take you two to three days to get through from Jerusalem and Judea up to Galilee, 
but now you're adding several days of walking onto your schedule. Jesus chooses the road less traveled. He takes the direct route, the route that the Jewish people would not have normally taken. Jesus has a direct route because he's got a direct purpose. In everything he does, he's got a direct purpose, and his purpose is to get to individuals, people on the edges, people that you would not normally interact with and reach them. His purpose that day is to come to Jacob's well and meet a woman. He comes to Jacob's well, and Jesus is weary. John makes the point to say, Jesus is tired. What does it mean that Jesus is tired? God's own son, sent from heaven, with power to do miracles, power to raise the dead, is tired. He's been teaching and healing and doing miracles across the Judean countryside. And now as he comes to this well, journeying probably four hours in the morning, he's tired. I don't know about you, but in our house, this is one of the signals that it's not a good time to deal with stress. In our house, we have to take an inventory when dealing with our kids or dealing with parents The times when we are angry or we are responding badly is usually has to do with one of a couple things. Someone's hungry, someone's sick, or someone's tired. These basic experiences of life where we get drained physically can leave us drained spiritually and emotionally. And these are the times when we're most vulnerable to temptation, to anger, to outbursts to poor decisions. I was reading an article by John Piper, and he said, weariness after doing the Lord's work can justify just about anything. In other words, after you've poured yourself into what the Lord wants you to do, you've done your work, you've done your task, you've worked hard at it, you've helped someone, you're tired. And at those moments, you can be vulnerable to justifying just about anything. Well, I I did all this good, and now all I'm getting back is more complaints, more stress, more trouble. Maybe it's at times like this when you justify unhealthy behavior, like you need an extra big bowl of ice cream, or you go to a beer, or you need a cup of coffee to pick you up. But in the more dangerous times, it's times like these when an addict needs a hit. Or a man turns to porn. Or a person that you don't like very much needs to hear exactly what you're really thinking. You're weary and you're vulnerable. Perhaps when we're drained like this, it's not just the sickness or the tired or the hungry that's making us this way. Maybe more than anything else is people. Dealing with people. Especially when you have to deal with that person who treated you badly, who hurt you, who lied to you. We have to deal with the person who's not as smart as you, who's more needy than you, who's lazy. Maybe that other person is simply different than you and you just cannot get along. 
Whatever it is, we find these situations and we start to create boundaries as far as how we'll interact with people, who we can deal with, who we just can't have in our lives. We create boundaries. Now, sometimes boundaries are helpful and healthy. When a person is hurting you or abusing you repeatedly or lying to you, you have to set boundaries in order to stay healthy yourself because you can't bear the other person's toxic conversations and actions that keep coming on you. You have to get refreshed yourself or else you'll act out of that vulnerability and hurt. But there's another place where those boundaries are really become a part of bitterness. You decide it's easier to avoid all situations that would put you anywhere near that unpleasant feeling of that person. And so you go the long way around, willing to take an extra three to five to seven days, willing to take an extra stretch of your journey in order to make sure you don't have to deal with that person that annoys you so much. This especially can be developed in a culture to the point where racism or uh, hatred between groups and political ideas can make people have these boundaries and walls up all the time. Jesus goes to Samaria and he finds this woman and he says to her, give me a drink. The woman is shocked because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. I'd have to pause and think now, who are these people that I might think the same way about? Who are the people that I would have no dealings with? Who are the people that have drained my well and have nothing left to give me back? And then I might be able to picture exactly what God is dealing with when he looks down on a world of people that drain him of his resources and don't give anything back. And yet Jesus goes to that very person. He goes when he's most weary at the point he would be most vulnerable to temptation to say something that might be right in every regard except for love. It's shocking. Not only is she a woman, not only is she a Samaritan, but she's likely a prostitute. She's alone in the middle of the day at the well when no one else is there. Likely because when people normally come in the evening or in the morning to get their water in the cooler part of the day, the other people won't associate with her. They won't let her near the well. And as he starts to reveal what he knows about her, her husbands, the husband upon husband upon husband that she's had, the men in her life, we see there is really a greater issue at stake here than just her ethnicity, but it's her spiritual sickness. If she had only known the gift of God, if people only knew the gift of God, And what it means for Jesus to come directly to you today or tomorrow, to come directly to your friends and your family and confront them with their own sins and yet also confront them with the goodness of his grace if they only knew. One of the reasons that Jacob's well was so precious was that it was a flowing well. 
Now, this is unlike other types of water that you could get in a dry and arid community. It would be found in a cistern where you could collect water. Proverbs 5 says, Drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. And it's contrasting the type of water you would have in a cistern that you collect and it sits there, rainwater, extra water you're storing, or running water. Now, Jacob's well, even to this day, still has that flowing water under the table. So when you go down deep enough, it's a stream. And that's what the Jews would call living water. Water that's not stagnant in a cistern. Water that's moving, water that's clean and good for drinking. Jeremiah brings up this illustration and he says, My people have committed two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And number two, they've created cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. At the time of Jeremiah, the people had left the source of living water, the Lord, and they turned to broken cisterns. And Jesus knows that this woman is used to going back time and time again to broken cisterns, cisterns that can't even hold water. What are those places in our lives where we turn to broken cisterns, where we look to the world for satisfaction? It might be addictions or entertainment. It might be social media or YouTube or video games or Netflix binging. It might be cookies and ice cream. And at the time, it seems harmless. These are just entertainment. These are just for fun. But in time, and maybe after a long time, you find that the sugar rust or the dopamine hit of opening up Twitter or Facebook, it just doesn't satisfy you anymore. And it leaves you feeling more drained than you were before. In fact, neurologically, they've proven that pulling out your smartphone more often drains you of energy than it does replenish you when you think you're resting. Now, even worse than this is when we get into more devious and spiritually harmful cisterns. We obsess about a text message that somebody sent us. We respond impulsively. We blow up. We create a nastier message back. We get into worse sins that only further entrench us in bad habits. Jesus knows this woman has been going to broken cisterns, and for her, it's men. She tries to play it off as if it's not really a problem. She has no husband. And Jesus says, well, I know. Because you've had five husbands. And the one you're currently with is not your husband. This woman is constantly thirsting, looking to broken cisterns, but she's finding no happiness. And where are these six men right now? Where are they who used to provide for her, but really they've only used her? They've gotten what they wanted and they've abandoned her. There were six who pretended to love her, but only the seventh really does. Only the seventh man in this woman's life is the one who she really is meant to be with, the one who can really satisfy what she's missing in her life. These other men can never supply what Jesus can supply. 
And Jesus calls it living water. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. You see, Jesus is greater than Jacob. Because even when Jacob could find this well in the middle of this barren land and provide living water to his people for thousands of years, Jesus provides living water to all people in all places for all time. We don't have to run to a dopamine hit. We don't have to look to sugar rush. We don't have to search for approval in other people who can't save us. Instead, Jesus says, he will give us what we're lacking. And not only will he supply it from himself, but he says it will become in you a fountain. So that the source is no longer something you have to keep running here, running there to get, but it becomes something in you, a fountain springing up. Later in chapter 7, Jesus identifies that this fountain is the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives the Holy Spirit so he can get to the heart and provide something lasting for this woman. She's looking for God's love everywhere, and she doesn't realize it's right in front of her. The Messiah, the chosen one, the one who is going to go to the cross for her, the one who is going to pay for her sins of adultery, the one who is going to redeem her, make her his own, and start her on a new journey and a new path. He starts talking to her about spiritual life and worship. She's wondering... If this is truly the Messiah, if this is a prophet, as he says, where does God really want us to worship? The Jews say it's over on this mountain, but the Samaritans say it's over on this mountain. Where are they supposed to find God? Now, Jesus points out that, yes, under the Old Testament, there was a time when Jerusalem was the center of the covenant life of God's people, that that was the place to go to the place where all nations were supposed to come to find the word, to find the sacrifices, to find God. But now he says his spirit is going out and God is searching for people. God is seeking people to worship him. He's looking all across this land. The psalm we read earlier says, like a deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you, O Lord. Hope in God, for I shall yet again praise him. When you look around you in your own life or in other people's lives, where are people thirsting? Where are they seeking to have satisfaction, to have meaning, to have hope? And that's where you find God searching. He's searching for those to worship him in the spirit, just to say, with that spirit born within you, providing faith, providing an endless supply of God, and also in truth. So Jesus wants that truth, not only from within, but from outside of you, to show you what you really need. How your heart is hurting, how the six men in her lives that she didn't want to talk about had been hidden away. He needs to bring that truth to all of us 
to expose and deliver us from what's hurting. And the truth of the cross and the resurrection shows us that Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, Jesus is the life. His resurrection has brought forth endless refreshment that we can keep going back to. A life that doesn't just end in this world, but it continues on in the world to come. And this is what Jesus wants to plant in Samaria, to plant in those places where they don't know him, to plant in those hearts who are seeking him. And he says it will become a new harvest. And the Father is looking for laborers to go out, to gather in that harvest. One sows, another waters, another reaps the benefits. And so at every stage, there's something for you to do. And if you don't think you're the right person, if you don't think you're good enough or you can speak well enough or you know the Bible well enough to share the gospel, just look at this woman. She didn't even know the difference between Samaria and Jerusalem. She didn't know much about the Bible. She only knew the life she had lived. But Jesus chooses her and she runs back to the town and becomes the one who sows the seed for a whole city to come and meet Jesus. So if you don't think you're that person, then you're looking in the wrong place. And from this one woman with such a crooked past, Jesus is bringing forth a great harvest. Isaiah 12 says, Therefore with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And in that day you will say, Praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his deeds among the peoples, make mention that his name is exalted. Amen.